Here at Revolving Door Syndrome, we're getting into the Christmas spirit and bringing you some bonus content from the previous corridor with Dr. Natalie Anderson talking about end-of-life care. I want to ask you some more questions about your work in research in palliative care and end-of-life care with nursing and paramedicine. I've had some shifts where I've had to deal with people who not necessarily dying then and there, but probably in the very near future or the next day or within the next couple of hours. I had a situation where two of our resus bays were actually with patients who were nearing end of life, one of them being admitted, one of them not sure at this stage. And the other one, the one that was being admitted, I hadn't actually had anything to do with them or anything like that. But you could see from the end of the bed, there's not much time left for this person. You could see that. And I made sure to be like, hey, is this anyone else that you want to be here I think if you need someone to be here you should ask for them now thankfully this gentleman had a son with him but said no that's all we have and I said okay and so then I went back to my own patient to try and sort them out because they were also needing some help because this gentleman was also nearing end of their life but I think that there was probably a disservice to them in terms of the amount of information given to this family it's hard to be the loved one of somebody who is nearing end of their life of course there's going to be a sense of denial of like we've got more time and it's so hard because I was I felt like I had to be the one to break it to them and all that Meanwhile, while I'm doing this, another clinician is trying to like do some more invasive tests on the other person next door. And I'm like, oh, I just, that's not what we were taught. This is not what we should be doing. I think we in emergency departments, because we deal with death a lot, I think it's almost easier for us to see, hey, this person, there's not much time left for this person. Yeah, I don't know. I think experienced clinicians have some confidence and recognizing I mean imminent dying is reasonably easy to recognize but sometimes it is quite hard to prognosticate about Mm. how much time people have left and I respect that when I'm in triage I can't triage someone as dying and I can't even triage them as frail Mm. and we very seldom actually write that someone is dying Mm. there is still even in emergency there is Mm. still a certain amount of death denial we don't like people dying in our emergency departments it's not a good place it's not a good place to die no one thinks it's a good place to die and I think that is part of the issue is that we would rather not have it happen in our space because we acknowledge that it's a terrible space to die but that that sometimes comes at the cost of us yeah maybe not fully acknowledging that it's there I think maybe your colleague does have a comparable amount of experience, but a lot of clinicians find it very difficult to change the focus of care away from a curative kind of, or even diagnostic, right? Because that's a big issue, isn't it? It's like you're trained to really understand all of the problems that are going on. And if you don't feel like you've got a good grasp on all of that, then you're taught that, that you've failed because you're constantly having to prove that you understand what's going on. But actually, if the patient's dying and it's not going to be a reversible process, it doesn't really matter. It is, you know, it's not essential. to know what their pH is right now, to know what their, you know, they're hypoxic. So do you really need to do a a blood gas? Because they're bloody painful. It's, but it takes a lot of personal kind of experience and courage to get to that place. And I have had very positive experiences with death and dying from very early in my career where I've had mentors normalise death in certain circumstances at the end of life and the very elderly. And I've cared for people who have died at the end of life in a way that I'm proud of, that I know we did a good job and death wasn't a failure. But for some of our colleagues who work primarily in acute care, death is associated with failure. Death is associated 
associated with things going wrong. It's frightening. It's uncomfortable. And so one of the best ways to deal with all of that discomfort is just to pretend it's not happening and go oh, to yes. your comfortable I mean, place. For example, it wasn't from our care in the emergency department. It was a different clinician kind of thing. And I just thought, I get it. You guys are taking over the care and you're making the decisions. But I'm like, I can see it. The nurses can see it. And what happened with this patient actually was that just after they were transferred, they did actually pass away. Mm. And I just thought we could have done better. We could have given this person a more relaxed sort of way of passing and I'm like oh gosh yeah yeah there's a lot I could say about that but acute care is poorly set up for prioritizing all of the things that we know are associated with or we tend to associate with good dying except we also we are quite good at providing symptom relief I feel bad when paramedics apologetically bring patients who are near death to hospital because I have colleagues that have done research in this area and it's not necessarily a failure sometimes there are symptoms that are out of control sometimes there are new unexpected elements and actually we're quite good at dealing with that in ED, right? You know, if you're dying but something new has cropped up, then maybe ED is the right place because we maybe do need to change the intervention, change the palliation in some way. But yeah, there have been some frustrating situations where I guess a clinical difference of opinion can mean that uncomfortable, cure-focused care persists for a long time. Some of the best care I ever gave at the end of life was in ICU because we were so well resourced. Mm. Turn off all my infusions, put the monitor into sleep mode so no one can see it, bring the family in. And because I'm one-to-one nursing, lots and lots of attention for that family and patient, making sure that they're comfortable and ask questions. And yeah, facilitating death to be the best it can be, to be able to recognise dying and to support family to have someone die at home is not an easy thing to do. Because if you're a paramedic and you get called because, you know, someone is dying and it's an expected death and all that, do they get, like, any information about it or do they just just have to show up? I could talk for an hour about the idea of expected death. It's not really that black and white. There's a proverbial expected death where the patient's under hospice care and they've got a plan for them to facilitate symptom relief, use the drugs that are already prescribed, Mm. perhaps even be able to contact specialist palliative care. But we know that most New Zealanders don't die under specialist palliative care, right? Mm. Most New Zealanders die of old age in rest homes. There can be a sudden deterioration, a new problem that crops up and so there's an unexpected element to it. And that's often what paramedics are seeing. I want to ask sort of about like your experiences with your partner and all that, if that's okay. So how have you found like your experience in the system with your partner? So, yeah, that's a big question. He wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for the system. The health system in New Zealand has saved him from certain death on multiple occasions as a child when he had myelodysplastic syndrome, unusually for a child, and had a bone marrow transplant. When he had, I think, 12 diagnosed heart attacks while he was on hemodialysis, and then when he had organ transplant of his new heart and a new kidney. How old was he when he had those? Had the transplants 15 years ago, so he must have been about 30. Had a whole lot of heart attacks in his 20s, which as you can imagine, quite difficult presenting to the emergency department and convincing people that you're having another heart attack, even though you've survived nine in the past and you're quite sure what it feels like. So yeah, lots of things went right. When he had a bone marrow transplant, which came years, it took years, I don't know, much about hematology, but he had this input from adult hematologists with paediatric specialists as well, and ultimately had his bone marrow transplant in the adult 
part of the hospital at a time when they hadn't done a lot of these transplants and hadn't done a lot of full body radiation and chemotherapy for reasons he found out, (laughs) unfortunately. He has had a lot of things that his parents have been told or he's been told, this might not work, there's an excellent chance you'll die. They've literally been told we're worried that he is going to die multiple times to the point that I can understand why they're a bit sceptical each time. Proving the wrong. They're like, yeah, you've said that before and he's still here. Um, So, yeah, and lots of people took a chance on him because he was young and a lot of the, not many people in their 20s have lots of heart attacks, not many young people with comorbidity that's related to their previous treatment need transplant. And they were very upfront about the unknowns of him being a bit different to the standard. Not that there's any standard transplant patient, but he was different, right? And so they're like, we can't necessarily predict exactly how this is going to go for you. There was an error made once where he was discharged without, he had lots of stents put in with his first heart and he was discharged without the antiplatelet therapy that he should have had. And that was just an error, right? From a really busy doctor who is a human and didn't prescribe them. So he reinfarcted and had a massive heart attack that time and a cardiac arrest in fact, but actually did such bad damage to his heart at that stage that he qualified for the double transplant that he then got eight days after he was put on the waiting list. So you could even argue that if that doctor hadn't made that error and he hadn't had that big heart attack at exactly that time, he might never have got the organs that matched him. And he has lived a relatively long time with those organs that we were we know that he was lucky to match with those organs that they have continued to live on in his body for 15 years. And that's uh, amazing. So even the bad things that happen can sometimes be good things. It is quite interesting seeing him like so much maintenance being in a transplant patient, all these different appointments, you never coordinate it. So, you know, you need to go in on Monday and have the echo and then Tuesday and have a cardiology appointment and then Wednesday and have this appointment, blah, blah, blah. I have to say shout out to renal physicians because they're really holistic and he's had some amazing renal physicians that have had an amazing whole person approach to his care and treated him with the respect that an expert patient who's pretty articulate deserves. But he's also had doctors where, you know, perhaps in some cardiology clinics, I feel like they would have been happier if he could just cut the heart out, stick it on the table for them to examine and all the rest of the mess is in the way. And yeah, things like hearing doctors fight over who's going to admit him because is he renal? Is he cardiology? Who does he belong to? Yeah, some really weird stuff that's gone on that's poorly connected. It seems very fragmented. People like your partner need like a MDT, multidisciplinary team, everyone sits down, let's talk about it and then give him one appointment. Yeah. And I've got to say that now at this point in his life where he he is, he knows he has a limited amount of time to, to live, doesn't know how long, of course, and he keeps exceeding expectations, but the renal team have ended up being those care coordinators. And I guess I'm really aware that we are extremely well resourced to negotiate and navigate the healthcare system. We know a lot more than the average person about how the health system works and about we have the health literacy to interpret what's going on, but we still had to fight tooth and nail for follow-up that he desperately needed, that we knew he needed. A lot of transplant patients feel this kind of sense of gratitude and like they owe the world something because they've had this incredible gift of organs. And so he hates to make a fuss and draw attention to himself. He's aware of how resource intensive he is. It's something we joke about all the time. But at the same time, yeah, he can also see that if he doesn't access some of these things, his health will deteriorate and that's not to benefit anyone. I worry and I see in the emergency department people presenting to the ED because they just don't know where else to go and they've fallen through those cracks. But actually, it's so easy to do if you're not 
shouting and saying, I really need this help. And that's not really universal healthcare that we aspire to, is it? No. Like the most vulnerable are getting missed out. And that shouty person at the ED <laughs> that we were talking about, who, do you know who I am? God, I hope I never say that. Eh? But uh, yeah, they're getting the care. And meanwhile, the ones that, that would perhaps benefit most from it are quietly not. I feel like in politics, specifically like right now, in the world, so much of it's led by ideology rather than what works. And I wish it wasn't so much about putting up policies that sound good but not don't won't necessarily have the impact that we're looking for. Yeah. Yes, but unfortunately in a in a soundbite world of social media mm-hmm. and messaging and so forth, the appealing solutions, that's part of the reason we've got a disinformation age really, is that people are lured by the appeal of a easy fix and yeah. We, that's that's not healthcare. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> like, my Connor was like, oh, I think National Party before was saying that they want to boost funding to Pharmac, like $20 million over four years or something. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's $5 million a year. Okay, so that would pay with $200,000 per year per person with CF for cystic fibrosis with one of those new drugs. That would pay for 20, 25 people to get that cystic fibrosis drug every year for four years and I'm like that's small potatoes right? small potatoes <laughs> the idea that oh we keep investing more in healthcare every year yeah because there's more humans living in New Zealand every year and we're getting older and we're looking talking longer about- <laughs> we're talking about this kind of stuff yeah <laughs> Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and te tiriti o Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap.